Just a fair warning here. Some of the content in this episode can be a bit graphic when it comes to describing the nature of Caroline's work in journalism. I was the one who was checking the authenticity of all the claims, including all the beheading. I stayed doing this for almost two years for CNN. And if it wasn't God's grace and, and, and hand, I would have definitely collapsed. From Lux Mundi, you're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Huang, and on today's show, Caroline Touts shares how difficult it was to pursue journalism in the Middle East and how an opportunity in her mid-20s to cover the Arab-Israeli peace process went south. What happened made her look like a traitor to her country, but this most difficult time at work gave her a new perspective on faith, and we'll just hear how her faith would later on help her through a brutal assignment where she'd have to watch some of the worst things humans can do to each other. Now let's talk about faith for a bit. How much of what you believe really changes the way you live your life, the way you view work or your worth? Faith is something you can't see, but you believe there's a truth behind it. Take for example, the meaning behind the term grace. It's what I was named after, getting something you don't deserve. But even when I was going through my teenage angst and rebellion, I couldn't really grasp receiving grace from God. But one day it clicked. And this faith in God's grace actually made me want to change how I was living my life. For Caroline, she too didn't fully grasp her faith during her childhood. She was raised in an English missionary school in Jordan. Her teachers were also her Sunday school teachers. I was raised knowing the content of the Bible, but that doesn't mean that I was a believer. I was a practicer, so I practiced uh, Christianity, but I did not really understand the gist of it. Jordan's a country in the Middle East with a culture that often favored men over women. Caroline says having a boy was viewed as far better than having a girl. But Caroline's grandfather, who was basically the tribal elder in the area they lived, he didn't treat Caroline any worse for being a girl. In fact, he'd invite her to sit in when high-ranking men would come by the house for important meetings. But I was the only female who was allowed to basically come and sit because I was my grandfather's favorite as, as the first kid to his son. And I was asking questions since I was a kid. Why you're wearing this? What, what does it mean? Why the color of, of, of your shirt is so and so? So I was asking so many questions and, and people were out of politeness in front of my grandfather and my grandmother were ans- answering my questions. So that basically gave me the right to keep asking questions and I'm still asking questions up to now. One of the visitors who Caroline asked questions of was a woman who worked for a children's television station. At a very young age, Caroline got to work at this kids' TV channel, which influenced her to pursue journalism. I think this basically cleared to me that I want to be on a theater or a journalist. But at the same time, since I was a kid, I was was always fighting for those who cannot fight. When my, anybody is like shouting at my cousin, for example, I'm the one who goes and, and gets his rights back. Fighting is not in, in like using hands, but I, I don't accept anybody to be undermined or not uh, treated fairly. Since I was a kid and up till now, I use this as part of my, my journalism mission as well. So when it came time to choose her major in college, 
Caroline was convinced it was journalism. But in Caroline's culture, family got involved in career choices, and not everyone was on board with that decision. What did your family say when you found out? They only knew when we were physically at the university going to register. My dad was under the impression that going to register either business or, or trade or whatever because he wants me to run the family business. And as a firstborn, you might have had the expectation to take on the business. Absolutely. That was, that was the expectations. Your dad, how did he feel? Well, well, we went together and then they were putting signs about where to register. So uh, in front of us was, was basically business and to the left was journalism. So uh, we were working together with my, with my mom and my dad. And then I, uh, I told them, let's go left. And then my dad said, why left? This is journalism. We're going to, to business. And I said, no, because we, I want to register in, in journalism. And of course, my dad was like the shock of his life. He said, what are you, what are you talking about? What journalism? These people, they, they, we don't have freedom of expression. Nobody will, will answer them. They will treat them badly, and especially that you're a female. And at the same time, he said, what's the income that you'll get? You cannot even cover your genes. <laughs> and I said, well, it's my choice, and I will, I will take the full responsibility for it. He wasn't happy about it. He argued with me. He argued with my mom a bit. And by the time we finished, of course, I registered, and then we went back. And my dad wasn't talking to me all the way back. And then my, my mom told my grandfather what happened. So I got the hug from my grandfather, and I went inside. And then my, my dad and my grandfather were talking together. And he said to him, imagine she wants to, she registered as a journalist. I don't think this is right. We should cancel this, and I'll send her somewhere else. And then my grandfather's discussion was, I can, you know, I can hear that. He told him, are you the one who's studying? She, take, she decided to do it. If she failed, it's her problem. If she succeeded, it's her, it's her success. And of course, my, my dad wasn't really happy about it, but at the same time, there's the, the respect in the culture that he respected his father's, but he wasn't convinced the first year. Caroline stood firm on her decision to pursue journalism. She got involved in starting the college newspaper, graduated in three years, and became the first female to graduate from her department. And even after that, Caroline was able to maneuver through the challenges of working in journalism in a country where media is state-owned. Journalism in Jordan, is that kind of owned by the government? How did it work in Jordan? The, the TV was owned by the government, and although I studied uh, radio and television as, as my, my uh, undergrads, but I didn't work for the TV uh, because simply TV is, is state-owned. And I worked for the newspaper that uh, was owned by this, uh, this editor-in-chief. It was a private, supposedly private. But, but of course, saying private, but still, for example, if, if the government is not happy with the prime minister, of, with, the, with the editor-in-chief, the prime minister can easily remove the editor-in-chief. But because this one was the owner, was a tough cookie. And he was like really, really important to, uh, to in, 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 like he was the head of the press association as well. So he was r so powerful. And he comes from a big tribe. So basically that gave us, in a way, uh, I was able to depend on a strong person to leave me, uh, do the proper journalism, and to, to basically fight for, for those who don't, cannot fight. And unlike what her dad thought, Caroline was able to work for a leading newspaper in Jordan, where the editor-in-chief made her the palace correspondent, and also let her cover the royal palace and the prime minister in Jordan. What was kind of the, the biggest task that they gave you? Uh, in 1990, Jordan was part of uh, the Arab-Israeli uh, peace process. And, uh, and then they looked around, and then my editor-in-chief said, uh, 
how about I send you to, to DC and, and handle the, the peace process? And I said, I'm happy to do it. Caroline was in her mid-20s when she was sent by her company to provide the latest coverage on the peace process in the 1990s Arab-Israeli conflict. She spent two and a half years in D.C. working with a group of delegates from other countries in the Middle East. It was a time when neighboring countries like Jordan sought to pursue peace with Israel, and yet they still needed to determine what that would look like. The first year of the peace process, they were all discussing uh, the agenda between the, the Jordanians and the Israelis and the Palestinians and the Israelis. What do you mean by this agenda? It's basically the issues that the Israelis and the Jordanians had agreed to discuss, and these are the main pillars for their agreement to start a proper uh, discussion and reaching a peace process. So that was a significant document because at that time there was a lot of players that maybe didn't want that to happen. Of course. And people were also questioning and, and uh, suspicious about whether we would reach anything at all. Some people, they believe that only war can bring uh, the land back. But late King Hussein, uh, God bless his soul, he was basically focusing on peace. He believes in peace, and, and he, he, was, he was really pushing towards peace. One year into the peace process in Washington, Caroline caught a big break. One of the biggest you can get as a journalist. She got an inside scoop. She got a copy of an agenda that both sides have supposedly reached to get to a peace deal. And she wanted to get it published in her paper as soon as possible. It took us almost, almost a year to reach an agreement on agenda for different political reasons. And then when, uh, when they reached that, one, uh, that uh, deal, they, they said that tomorrow we will do a press conference and we will do the announcement. So through my contacts, I got a copy of the agenda and I sent the agenda using the fax. At that time, it was fax machine. So I faxed it to my editor-in-chief. You know that in the old days when, when people were using fax, uh, some, some shops were offering the service. So I went, used that service, sent it to Jordan. I sent it in, in English, and I also sent it in Arabic. And then the editor-in-chief called me, and he said, I'm not going to put your byline on it because I will take the full responsibility. He's the editor-in-chief, so he is responsible for it. And I told him, but everybody knows that I'm in D.C. He said, still, by law, I'm the one who's responsible, so I take this responsibility from you. So anyway, so it was posted. And uh, with the time difference between Jordan and, and Washington, it's eight hours. So early in the morning, supposedly we have a press conference. And then we w- woke up at six o'clock in the morning uh, with phone calls coming to my room. At that time, apparently, Israel was, was attacking the south of Lebanon. And, uh, and of course, it wasn't really the right decision for any Arab delegation to sit and talk peace with Israel while another brother who was also in the delega- part of the delegations uh, in Washington being attacked. So uh, they decided to put it on hold. So this is when the situation went south. What Caroline sent to be printed in Jordan didn't end up happening the next morning. The delegation decided not to do the press conferences and not to announce that they've reached any agreement because Lebanon was under attack. When you are uh, sitting on a table with the Israelis and you have other delegations, so it's a matter of respect actually to the other delegation. So you cannot really accept to do a peace uh, and, and still in the process of doing the peace and, and having also another country attacked. You know, I will put myself also in, in the king's shoes and I will definitely say put everything on hold because we cannot announce that we are friends while you are our the so-called friends are attacking another brother so that was that was a noble decision if i knew that they would put it on hold i would have put it on hold 
But that all happened in the middle of the night when we were sleeping because of the time difference. Caroline had no idea this attack would happen overnight, but it was too late. The paper was published, and since it represented the country, it made King Hussein look like he betrayed the neighboring nations. This caused confusion in Jordan, and Caroline found herself in the midst of it. The officials, they came, knocked on my door. What did you do? I was treated like, a, like the traitor who betrayed the, the country, betrayed the delegation. Did that get to you? Of course, it was, it was tough when you are also away from your country and your friends and family. I was also worried and feeling sad that that would bring my family also down, uh, which I didn't want anybody to be hurt because of me. And I was really worried about my family and, and everything they do because, uh, because it's tough, in, especially in a region. You cannot really predict what will happen. So when, when, when I reached that level, I literally felt that I lost everything. I have nothing at all. I lost the confidence of, of the person I, I really respect, which is the king. Uh, and I lost all my fame. People looking at me as, there's, you know, don't trust her. And, uh, and everything is, is basically uh, blocked for me. And when you said this thing being blocked, what did that mean? The editor-in-chief was called many times uh, by the prime minister, by the intelligence, by you name it, for investigation. They asked him about the agenda, and he said to them, I got the agenda. I, I'm the one who got the agenda. And they told him, but we know that you don't speak English. So how did you get the agenda? Caroline got it. She said, did you read her name? I am the editor-in-chief, and I take the full responsibility. At the same time, I was applying for... Uh, a permit for, for regular services in, in Jordan. They asked me to get a permission from the intelligence. And when I went to the intelligence, they were asking me about the agenda, who gave me the, the agenda. And I told them it will be my last day to be a journalist, to write one word, and I will lose my respect if I do that. And I refused to, to give anybody up to now. I did not mention the name of the person who gave me the agenda. Up until this incident, everything in Caroline's career was pretty much going her way. But now, she was ostracized by many political and media figures in Jordan. The emotional stress was taking a toll on her, and she decided to confide in her brother. Her brother was a banker at the time, and in recent years, had come to a genuine faith himself. I told him the whole story, what happened. So he saw me crying, and I was so down, and I was myself, basically, with my brother. And, and then he said, how about we pray together? And he started, basically, to talk to me about the Lord from a different perspective. What do you mean? What perspective was that? How was it new? He was basically talking to, to my inner uh, uh, part and, and basically by explaining to me how special I am to the Lord. It's not because I'm Christian, because I'm, you know, I'm his daughter. It's not by papers because I'm writ written in my passport that I'm a Christian. It's because I'm his daughter and he cares for me. And he gave me some examples. My brother, when he was talking to me, but he said, let's pray together and let the Lord talk to you, not me. So we kept praying, praying for like four or five hours nonstop, praying and crying. And then I started to hear the voice of the Lord because I was like asking him, why did, why did you do this to me? You know, I was a good person. I'm, I'm, I'm still a good person, but I was badly treated, blah, blah, blah. And then I started to hear the voice of the Lord. Remember what, when this and that happened, he was, you know, the Lord started to give me examples how he saved me from falling down and, and how he basically helped me. But of course, the beauty, beauty of the whole four, four or five hours was to only communicate directly with the Lord and hear the voice of the Lord. When this happened, I was on my knees and I was crying nonstop. And then I, I committed to the Lord that I, I'm not going to listen but to his voice. 
and of course my brother became my my prayer partner and and for him was was he was crying with me because of my incident but they say he was crying a, a joyful tears because he saw that God used him to bring me back on track if you like and then from there I made the commitment that I am dedicating my life and and he comes first as my lord and savior after you you were on your knees and you were crying you started to change your life to make god first but did you have thoughts about your career were you going to give up on journalism at any point because of the incident i didn't think that i will i will become something else or, uh, or move to a different uh, different career it stays there but uh, but the, the being passionate is passionate because i know that i am standing on a solid uh, rock and i'm you know i wasn't really afraid of doing anything before knowing the lord that that well uh in in my career i was covering wars and everything that's that was part of my mission but i know that god is always holding my hand and he's in, he's in charge and he's leading me and if there's a danger i know that he will stop me caroline still didn't have clarity on her work situation what professional consequences she'd face Plus, people were now accusing her of publishing the agenda in order to undermine the king, to overthrow him. What she says totally wasn't true. But through all this turmoil, she did have a renewed spirit and mind. Caroline spent a few weeks after the agenda publication debacle, not sure what to do with herself. While her boss commended her for an excellent work and took responsibility of what happened, he also told her to take some time off and wait for the dust to settle. And it was almost at the perfect time, after she experienced a renewed faith, that her boss called her up and told her what to do next. And then suddenly, my editor-in-chief said, uh, there's a huge event happening, and the king is coming, and everybody is coming. Uh, why don't you just go and have fun? And I said, but you know what, how they treat me? He said, if you don't want to go, don't go. I don't want to push you. But uh, you haven't done anything wrong. You've done a professional work, so it's up to you. So I decided to go, and it was it was a big hall, probably like more than 1,000 people attending. The king was attending with the government, the senates and parliaments, everybody. And I chose to sit the last seat on the on the edge, literally at the end of the of the hall. So the event was over. The king was coming out in the, from the middle row outside, and then he looked right and he saw me. And then he walked all the way to me, and of course all his entourage were following him, and he shook hands with me and he said, how are you? I haven't seen you for ages. Are you okay? Everything is fine. You should come, uh, c- come, come, come and visit. I really miss you. That was like a redeeming moment. And, and then, and of course, immediately I said, well, thank you very much. Yeah, definitely. It's a pleasure. And he said, uh, everything is fine? I said, yeah, everything is fine. And that was it. All the officials who were treating me bad, they were queuing to shake hands with me. So everyone who was treating you badly, your colleagues and everything, when they saw that the king was going to you and speaking to you and addressing you, they started being your friends again. They all turned again 180 degrees. Everybody became my friend. Everybody was like missing me. They haven't seen me for ages. And you know, they, they would like to invite me to their events and stuff. So that, that incident, when you listen to it, do you believe that human beings can, can basically change their mind like this? It's a miracle. If my father is way higher, he's the king of kings, definitely one of the kings on the, you know, the earthly kings can come and shake hands with me. And that basically made me focus more on the cross and the Lord than basically focusing on anything that is bright and shining 
here on the ground. Yeah, because people can just change in, it, in, in this industry. In one minute, you lose it, and in one minute, you gain it back. You remind yourself all the time, easy come, easy go. It's not important, but you, you need to keep what is valuable, which is your relationship uh, with the Lord and your focus is, is basically not how I will become more popular. It's how much I will get closer to the Lord. So how do you think everything just went away? You know, God sent somebody to, so to clarify the issues that uh, the, the king's brother-in-law, he was with us in the delegation with his son. They were in the palace, and then the king said to them, you know Caroline very well, do you think that she can be a part of a plot? And they told him, of course not. I became closer even to the king. According to the people, it brought, brought respect to me again, but for me, it brought more confidence to, you know, that the Lord is the one who's doing this miracle and, and changing the, the whole Jordan, not only the king. The page turned for Caroline. The king, in a way, redeemed her when he shook her hand in the large gathering. She was eventually cleared from being part of a plot, and she continued to liaise from the palace. She worked her way up to be managing editor of the paper. But then something happened that made her want to pursue a career change. In 1999, King Hussein died. He was, for me, like a father, and I was, he was treating me always like his daughter. So I felt that, uh, for me, I need, I need to know what exactly should be next. And I decided that I want to have uh, really total focus on, on praying and finding out what's, what should be next. So I, I decided to leave the country after his death, and I went to the, the UK to get my master's. And during that year, I was, I was praying to know what should be next. And th- then the Lord opened the door for another, another challenge, and that brought me to Dubai to work for CNN. After the break, you'll hear how Caroline got the opportunity to work for CNN. You'll hear how she was part of advising them to set up the operations in Dubai and what she went through to get them up and running. Hi guys, tis the season to be giving. Listen up for an amazing opportunity that my family and myself have personally given to since 2013. With me is a good friend, Lori Hart, who started Love for Syria. So tell us, Lori, what happened back in 2013 that prompted you to start Love for Syria? I was living in the Middle East teaching English I made contact with a woman who had started a knitting group made up of Syrian refugees living in Jordan. These women had lost everything. They'd lost their homes, their livelihood, and and were now living as refugees in Jordan with no way to really make ends meet. So I saw their skill as knitters and just their, their desire to work. So we went back to our local church and we had a bunch of items to sell. People were really receptive to know that the items they're giving are are not only handcraft, but are actually giving an income, providing livelihood to a Syrian woman in need. So Love for Syria is a nonprofit in the U.S. that sells and distributes the knitwear these Syrian refugee women make to provide them income. Does it do anything else, Lori? Yeah, well, at Christmas, we're so excited about our Keep a Syrian Child Warm This Winter campaign. For a donation of $75, we can buy handmade knitwear that will provide two weeks of income to a Syrian woman. And the knitwear she makes gets delivered to a Syrian child in need this winter. 
And Lori, what does a donor get in return? The donor will get a photo of the, one of the children who have received one of the gifts with his or her name, age, and dream on the back. And it's also designed as an ornament that you can hang on your tree. So Lori came up with this campaign idea after multiple trips during her vacation days to visit the knitting woman and Syrian children. Hope you will join us to give this Christmas season. Check out the Love for Syria website to give to this cause today or visit our website to get connected. Hey, welcome back. Before the break, Caroline wanted a change in her career after King Hussein passed away. So she decided to pursue a master's in London. She wanted to stay away from the royal family, from Jordan, and have space to think through what was next. But it wasn't easy. Caroline's connection to Queen Rania's chief of staff got her invited to an important media event in London. And it was there where she was surrounded by top media executives from CNN, BBC, NBC, and so on. And it was at the table she got to share how she envisioned a CNN promo for the year 2000. And this first impression would eventually open up the next door for her career. Basically, I was surrounded by the right people, if you like. At that time, it was 99. So I was discussing with, uh, with the CNN guy. I said, OK, what, what are you planning to do for the 2000, you know, the, for the festivities? And he said, we haven't thought about that, but we're thinking about, like, you need information in order to, whatever you are, to grow. And I said, well, you know what? I have the visuals for you. You can do it in Jordan. And he said, what do you mean? I told him you can do it in the desert. There's internet. There's also uh, satellites. So Bedouins who are living in, in caves, they speak English. They watch TV, CNN. The, this is the knowledge. Whether you're in the desert or in New York or desert or Japan, you still need the information. And that CNN is the information. He said, that's beautiful visuals. But who can help us to do it? I said, well, I'm happy to help you for free from here. Caroline went out of her way to do some work for free for CNN. From there, she got to prove herself, get quotes for her thesis, and continue to keep in touch with the top media execs. So right after Caroline finished her master's, CNN reached out on an opportunity to pioneer the setup of the first Arabic language services for CNN in the Gulf. He wanted me to go to the Arab world. He gave me three options. He gave me Jordan, he gave me Bahrain, and he gave me the UAE. So I told him, Jordan, uh, we don't have proper infrastructure, but we have the manpower, we have the, the, the knowledge. Uh, in the UAE, we have infrastructure. We don't have people who can do it, but we can bring people from Jordan. And Bahrain, at that time, I, I said it's not going to be politically stable. I sent him a detailed analysis why, and based on that, he, 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 he took the decision. And, uh, and then based on that, we are, we are here in the UAE, so that's how it happened. Your background was in journalism, and then you were going to do operations, which is like business admin. Were you ready for that? Of course, at the beginning, I was like really excited. Then uh, just a few days before really moving here, end of 2001, I was like questioning, am I really good at it? It's a big brand, and you're talking about a big brand already that's been existed for decades, and it's a big challenge. Because, you know, everybody would be expecting you to be either the same or even better, which is impossible to do it, at, you know, in a different language and also as a starting point. But I was hesitant, and that's why I requested uh, from CNN to uh, not to sign my contract for the first six months until I feel that this is really what I want. Uh, thankfully, they agreed, and they said, as long as you're running it, because we need somebody to run it. And I was running it uh, wearing two hats the editorial hats, which is my, you know, my, my profession and, and, and my career. But at the same time, as you said, it, they added also the, the management and the development uh, as, a, as a second, uh, second hand. 
I send the breaking news, and I also get the groceries. So that was me. What did you do when you landed in Dubai for CNN? I was given 16 days uh, to, to start everything and have it up and running. So. 60 or 16? 16 days, one six. That was a, a real challenge. Of course, I was, I was like acting like maniac, but, but you know, recruiting the staff, choosing the office, um, start thinking about responsible for the, for the staff to, to bring them over here, to settle them in accommodation, and at the same time, starting something from scratch, the operation, we were not connected. It was also connecting and ma making sure that you are connected to the servers, the right servers. We used to connect with 11 to 12 servers for security reasons and, and making sure that we're up and running. And even the brand, the, the, the URL was actually taken by a gentleman who was an investor. He bought it a few years ago with $25. So I had to, uh, to rush and find the man, negotiate with him, convince him to give us the, the, the URL back. And, uh, and registered in Atlanta before 36 hours of the launch. So despite the pressure to get set up before the launch, Caroline did it, and CNN Arabic Services launched in Dubai in 2002, the year after 9-11, when the entire world was watching the war on terror in the Middle East. And what Caroline was set out to do required going beyond her skills to also relying on her faith. And it was often upsetting work. It was a critical year for CNN Arabic. It was right after 9-11, so there was a lot to cover. Of course, it was, it was a challenge because uh, we started to be in charge of all the claim of responsibilities. Uh, unfortunately, it was a tough one. I couldn't give it to my team because they were not able to, and they refused. Of course, you cannot force people to, to watch uh, a, a beheading or to listen to a beheading or claim of responsibilities. Can you clarify what claim? Well, when Al-Qaeda used to behead somebody, they used to put on, on uh, social media, there was no social media at that time, they used to send us email or send somebody email or send it to Al Jazeera uh, with the beheading or the audio or the visual sometimes. And they also issue a claim of responsibility that they did it. So you need to dig inside to see if this is authentic or not authentic. So I was the one who was checking the authenticity of all the claims including all the beheading. I stayed doing this for almost two years for CNN. And if it wasn't God's grace and, and, and hand, I would have definitely collapsed because I have to really let out these things. But I was like a machine you know, that, that sits down, listen to all of these things, do my report, and I switch off and I'm, I'm off. It, it's, it's a real miracle because people, they keep dreaming even about it. I didn't do this thing and I was really blessed for two and a half years, doing this two years. And then CNN hired more people to work on that matter. But the, the authentic, you know, like to check the authenticity of the, of the claim or all of these things were basically on my shoulder for two and a half years. A warning here. This next part gets particularly graphic and might not be appropriate for all listeners. So do you remember a critical moment? One of the critical time I still remember, there was a, an American uh, hostage in, in Saudi. They, they did the beheading as an, uh, as an audio, and you can hear the beheading and the bones and all that stuff because that was like... So uh, CNN uh, wanted to check. Immediately we saw it. I heard it quickly, and immediately CNN called, and they said, we want you to do a beeper, beeper, which is an interview on the phone. So I said, okay, but I'm still listening to it. They said, you have to go live because we this, is a, this is a breaking news. So I was listening to it, 
And I was trying also at the same time to be in control. So my voice doesn't reflect the horrible thing that I was listening to because, you know, the parents might be listening to CNN or watching CNN or anybody watching. So I need to be professional. And they kept me live for like 20 minutes and I'm listening to it and I'm, I'm explaining to them live what's happening. Thank God it wasn't on camera. It was only audio so I can at least relax my face. So I was reporting what I'm listening and I was answering all the questions live and they were taking me from CNN domestic to CNN international nonstop for almost two hours. And you need to be careful, professional, smart in what you're choosing, even the terminologies that you're using, uh, and not reflecting the horrible uh, sound that you just heard of a person, human being being beheaded, simply because he is foreigner. So what did you do after this two-hour live session on CNN? I, I literally, I was alone in the middle of the night, I felt that I'm about to collapse. And I, I immediately this the thing in you know the, the thing that when you when you're a believer and you are in a critical situation emotionally or professionally or anything, you feel that you can put your head on the shoulder and and cry, and you know that uh, the hand of the Lord is is really holding you tight and protecting you. So there's nothing to fear afterwards. Caroline has had a long, fulfilling, and exciting career in journalism. But she told me the way she looks at it now is different than how she did when she started decades earlier. I look at my career as, a, as an opportunity that the Lord gave it to me, but it's not, it's not the priority. It's not the number one. So how is CNN Arabic now? I, I joined CNN and we, I started one operation in the UAE with four people. And now we have four operations with almost 100 people. We have two in Dubai, we have two in Abu Dhabi, we have two CNN, we have two Turner. So it's, it's growing and it's, uh, it's glowing as well. Beyond finding fulfillment at work, Caroline ended up meeting Karsten Touts in the UAE and they got married in 2007. Caroline's work was demanding, so she didn't expect to find someone she would eventually partner with to serve with in their local church. And, and through being here, I also met my partner. He was actually a testimony from the Lord that he wants me to be with my partner serving. And God actually helped us to find the proper church. And we were so excited. Every Friday, we go Fridays here in this part of the world to church, not Sunday. But every Friday, we, we wake up and we're so excited that we're going to serve the Lord. I'm really blessed. And I believe that God used me uh, to be here in the UAE and to start this challenge. Looking back at Caroline's life, the lowest point in her career turned out to be a plus for her faith. Had it not been for the agenda predicament, Caroline might not have ever learned how to pray directly to God. Because although she was exposed to Christianity at an early age, life was busy, often leaving no time to see what it would mean to bring God into her life and her work. And when she called out in prayer that one day, it allowed her to see that her faith was actually about a personal relationship with God. And this prayerful attitude eventually guided her to get through a master's in the UK, move her to Dubai, and get her through some of the most daunting reporting in the 21st century to date. Now I wanna leave you with this. How does your faith look like in the face of adversity at work? There might be a purpose beyond your circumstance. 
and would you consider praying about it like Caroline did? It really was life-changing for her. And I too believe at any time we make an effort to pray, it does something to our faith and our worldview. This is Grace Huang, hoping to bring you stories that revive your work week. Thanks for listening and have a blessed week. Faith Collides is hosted and produced by me. This episode is edited by me and Chris Benderev. Audio mixing by Joshua Huang. If you like what you hear, please follow us and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening.